Welcome to another episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, sponsored by the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary in Red Lodge, Montana. And our subject today is bison. When wild animals of the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem can't be released back into the wild, when finding a permanent home is literally a life or death matter, that's when Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary steps in to provide their forever home. The sanctuary's mission also includes conservation education programs like this podcast. Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary is a 501c3 nonprofit and is not affiliated with or funded by Yellowstone National Park or the Park Service. How can you help? Visit YellowstoneWildlifeSanctuary.org and use the donate button or shop the online store. My name is Gary Robson and this is my co-host, Eden Wondrich. We named this summer the Summer of the Bison here at Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary. We celebrated Speedy, one of our bison's 20th birthday, and now we're inching up on our other bison, Luna's one-year anniversary. It's about time we did a podcast dedicated to these fascinating animals. Speedy is our oldest resident on the grounds, and she's roughly 750 pounds, which is actually pretty small for a bison. Males can get up to 2,000 pounds, and females about 1,000 pounds making them the biggest animal in all of North America. Speedy came to us from a herd nearby in Montana where she was born a twin and was actually the runt and rejected by her mom. Um, The family tried to reintroduce her over time and they just continued to reject her. And so they raised her at home until she got too big for that. (laughs) And then she was donated to us to take care of and we've raised her here ever since. Luna was donated to us from a nearby ranch when they actually couldn't keep their herd anymore. They had to sell off their bison. And she was donated to us last year. And that was a great companion for Speedy. How do you tell those two apart if you're a visitor just checking out the wildlife sanctuary? That's a good question. People ask that all the time when they're down there seeing our bison. Speedy is a smaller one. Luna is, is much bigger. The other thing is they each have tags on their ears and Speedy's is yellow and Luna's is orange. Speedy also has much longer horns. Speedy's horns are also a little bit wonky if you look at her. They, they don't uh, line up perfectly coming around. Oh yeah, that's a good way to tell them <laughs> apart too. Speedy's are very asymmetrical. <laughs> Bison are one of the most iconic animals in Yellowstone, which is one of the reasons we're so excited to have Speedy and Luna here. There's a very good reason for that. They are the national mammal of the United States, the largest animal in North America, and they have a uh, dark but successful conservation story. Bison migrated into the Americas 20, 30 million years ago from Eurasia, but uh, they were much larger than the bison we have today. Bison in Yellowstone today uh, most likely are smaller due to a change in climate back 15,000 years ago or so, which changed the availability and nutritional value of their food. So they've pretty much been the species they are now since the last big retreat of the glaciers and first human presence in Yellowstone. Pretty much from then until now, at least until a couple of hundred years ago, The herds ranged wide and they ranged free. Tens of millions of them just roamed the plains of of North America. There was about a 7,700 square mile area around the headwaters of the Yellowstone-Madison rivers where uh, the Yellowstone bison were. 
because of the greater Yellowstone's location at the convergence of the Great Plains, the Great Basin, and the Plateau Indian cultures, there were a lot of native people who lived in the same area as the bison. They have a traditional connection to the land and its resources, including the bison. And many of the ancestors of 27 contemporary tribes relied on the bison for food, clothing, medicine, and more. Ancestors to today's Blackfeet, Cayuse, Coeur d'Alene, Shoshone, Nez Perce, among others, would travel the area on established trails, visited geysers, conducted ceremonies, hunted, gathered plants and minerals, engaged in trade. The Shoshone Report family groups came to Yellowstone to gather obsidian, which they used to field dress bison. The Crow occupied the area generally to the east of the park, and the Umatilla occupied the area to the north. Shoshone, Bannock, other tribes of the plateaus to the west traversed the park annually to hunt on the plains to the east. Other Blackfeet groups hunted open areas west and south of Yellowstone. And this was true until the 1800s. At this time, European settlers were coming into Yellowstone area from the east, and for a combination of reasons, the bison were systematically wiped out. Some of these reasons include that they were really huge on the market at the time for winter coats and rugs, especially in the east coast and in Europe. Removing them was also a way to make room for cattle and horse and other domestic animals. And it was also in order for the U.S. Army to eliminate the bison in order to force colonization on the natives by taking away important survival and cultural ways of life for them. And this was used as a tool to force them into reservations as well. Also, the disruption of their migration and the killing of the adults decreased the bison's chances of mating, having successful babies, or the survival of the baby after birth. Because of all those reasons, by 1902, there were only about 24 bison left hidden away in the Yellowstone National Park area. They were actually considered ecologically extinct at this point. While this was happening, the U.S. Congress signed a law on March 1st, 1872, making Yellowstone the first national park in the whole world. And by 1886, the U.S. Army began managing and protecting the park until the National Park Service was created in 1916. Ironically, in 1902, when the last few bison were discovered in the park, the U.S. Army was therefore in charge of the protection of the bison rather than the calling of them at that time. Which actually has a callback to one of our recent podcast episodes where we were talking about switches in the USDA's mission and some of the other groups Mm -hmm. as they've moved from elimination to protection of different animals. A lot of people since then, especially the members of the Park Service, have worked hard to restore the bison population, and they're thriving. Yellowstone's population is the largest bison herd on public lands, and one of the most important because it's the only place where bison have lived continuously since prehistoric times. It's really cool to see some of the new things that are going on, including using bison that leave the park as seed herds on reservation lands. So we're actually taking bison from the park and giving them back to the people that they were taken from to establish herds so that they can go back to a lot of what they used to do. The Yellowstone herd is continuing to grow at about 10 to 17% a year. And in 2013, it was 
determine that it's doing so well, it needs to be better managed because, as we just mentioned, the population is overflowing the park boundaries. This is a very complicated and controversial topic. So to do so, we have brought in an expert, Dr. Chris Jeremiah, the lead bison biologist for Yellowstone National Park. So good morning, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you. We know you're so busy, so we appreciate having you on here and taking your time to discuss this with us. So how are you doing this morning? Great. Uh, thanks for, uh, for the invite. It's awesome to talk about Buffalo. So just to bring a little perspective into the listeners, the numbers vary, but according to what we've seen in the research, 30 to 60 million bison uh, roamed the Great Plains of North America at one point, and after the European settlers moved in, they were almost completely wiped out. Uh, the number in Yellowstone dropped, as I recall, to 24, not 24 million or 24,000, but 24 considered ecologically extinct. But since then, people, especially people in the Park Service and people at Yellowstone National Park, uh, have worked hard to restore the population and bison are thriving to the point where you've got some other programs going on with them. Uh, Yellowstone's population is now the largest wild bison herd, largest herd on uh, public lands. And uh, one of the most important because it's the only place where bison lived continuously since prehistoric times. So our first question for you, since your summer research is wrapping up, I know part of that summer research included counting the individuals as they were gathering for rut. Um, are those numbers in yet? Do you have a current bison population in the park? We do. We think there's about 5,400 bison in the bison population. And uh, that's about as large as it's been uh, in, uh, since we started recording numbers. So you consider that a, a healthy, sustainable level? But that's always a, a very hard question to answer. And the reason why is buffalo are a migratory animal. That means they know how to, how to move and in sync with the land. They, uh, they travel upwards of a thousand miles in the course of a year in the park. And those movements can take them outside of the boundaries of the park. And when animals move outside of the park, it can create conflict. Now, I was just giving you that background because we know Yellowstone can support six to 10,000 or more animals, just purely based on the amount of plant, plants that are produced each year. But bison are migratory. They move in and outside of the park. When they move outside of the park, it can create conflict and too many moving outside of the park creates a ton of conflict. So the more animals you have in the park, the more chance you have for more conflict outside of the park. That's why there's not currently six to 10,000 animals in here. So what, what other factors were considered when deciding when and why to manage the park herd as it gets larger and who's involved in that decision making? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I have a little crystal ball and I just kind of <laughs> bison buffalo are complicated when um, there are various state and federal and tribal partners and we work together to try and come up with a vision for bison in the modern world there's not another place on the planet where we're testing the idea of can bison be truly wild 
truly migratory, truly in sync with large landscapes. So what that means is bison are gonna move from inside of the park to outside of the park. Different people you know, are responsible, you know, are the managers of those animals when they cross jurisdictions. So we work with numerous Native American tribes that either harvest animals that exit the park through hunting using treaties, uh, accept animals that have been rounded up and sent to slaughter, you know, and utilize the meat, or we transfer them live to some tribes to restart wild populations back on tribal lands where they belong. You know, we also work with the state of Montana, uh, the, the, you know, Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks and Montana Department of Livestock and the state veterinarian. Bison are infected with a disease called brucellosis. It's a cattle-borne disease. It can cause bison or cattle or elk to abort when they're late in pregnancy. The disease is heavily regulated in the livestock industry. So a private producer having their private herd become infected you know, can cause big problems economically to that producer and economically to the state. And also in terms of being good neighbors, it can create conflict. So we work with you know, the state of Montana to try and figure out how do you manage that risk of brucellosis transmission, but also have bison as a wild animal. We also, you know, one of the other partners is the Forest Service because bison naturally migrate out on the Forest Service land outside of the west boundary of the park and the north boundary of the park. We also work with the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, which is a branch of USDA, which is involved with managing diseases of livestock. So due to brucellosis, they work helping us try and figure out how do you manage that transmission risk. So those are the partners. You know, we work through a, for a formal forum called the Interagency Bison Management Plan that was created in 2000. And we come together and try and come up with a way to manage bison in terms of numbers, in terms of how they're removed when they exit the park, in terms of how do you improve hunts? How do you get live bison out to tribes? How do you, you know, how do you do all of the sorts of things you need to do to have a truly wild herd here in Yellowstone? That's a really big job. I appreciate <laughs> what you've been doing yeah. with it since your your time in the position, um, helping them out. So that's the the biggest concern about the populations going outside of the park boundaries is brucellosis. It's about managing conflicts. Conflicts when bison move out to the towns at the edge of the park, typically Gardner and West Yellowstone. Now, sometimes it's disease, sometimes it's human safety, sometimes it's property damage. There's not another place where people are living with wild bison. We try and manage those conflicts as best we can. And when I say we, it's, it's all of the agencies and tribes that I mentioned earlier. So I know in addition to managing and dealing with the bison themselves, uh, a part of your job is studying the effect bison have on the ecosystem. And one of the messages that we use here at the sanctuary, one of the explanations of ecosystem management is the trophic cascade that came about after the wolf reintroduction in Yellowstone National Park and how the reintroduction of the wolves changed 
uh, the behavior of the prey animals around them and ended up actually changing the landscape of the park. But even though that was the big recent visible uh, example of that here, bison have had a lot more effect on the, the park and the ecosystem than the wolves had, right? <laughs> you know, it's funny, you know, in every ecosystem, there's an elephant, just like the lion. You know, there's a top predator, a top dog, that's going to have these these trickle down effects, you know, on the entire ecosystem. You're also going to have something that evolves that's bigger than all of your predators, and it's going to have you know these really important bubble up effects. And when you put those two things back in harmony, back in balance, you just make the whole ecosystem a more resilient, stronger thing. So getting wolves and now bison back in the same ecosystem. You know, it, it, it has profound effects on what Yellowstone looks like and how it functions. You know, one of the things that bison do is if you're trying to figure out, you know, how an ecosystem is working, one way to do that is to look at how much energy is moving through the system. It's really complicated. You know, what that means is, you know, you've got the sun, it's a ton of energy. And it absorb energy from the sun. They grow. And then all of that gets transferred up to your herbivores when they eat plant material. And then it gets transferred up to your predators when they eat the herbivores. So, you know, really looking at like how much plant material is growing in the park and how it grows is a really good indicator of, you know, how much energy, how much, you know, how much health the ecosystem has. I, I've described it to some people like, well, you know, if I put my hands here, it's like we learned about these food pyramids back when we were in grade school. You know, your base, your food period's this big, you know, you can only fit so much on top of it. But if you can stretch out the base of the food pyramid, you have potential to put that much more on top of it. And that's what bison do to the system. You know, the way and how they graze, it stimulates plants to regrow after they're grazed upon, which allows them to be more productive, to produce more material above ground and below ground each year than if they weren't grazed. And what that does is it supports, a, you know, a bigger Yellowstone ecosystem. You know, and then, you know, and there's all sorts of little nuances to that that we find. You know, they affect the timing that plants grow, you know, the greenness of the park, how this park changes from winter to summer, a white landscape to a beautiful green landscape. You know, that wave of green, how it moves apart across the park is all affected by bison. And then all of the animals that rely on that food for nutrition, for birth, you know, are, you know, are you know, being tugged on by this big old brown giant that's walking around the land. So that's it. We're now going to have to call bison the elephants of Yellowstone. I love that. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, you have to come up with something other than Luna. And what was the name of the other animal? <laughs> so Tembo for the next one. Yeah. <laughs> that would be really funny. And I like the idea of stretching the pyramid too. That's a really clear yeah. way to explain it for kids. So I'm sure this is having an effect on other predators and prey then prey animals. Are, are grizzlies preying on Yellowstone National Park bison? 
Now, there's observations of grizzlies, of wolves preying on bison each year. You know, it's definitely happening, particularly in the case of grizzly bears on, on really young bison, on newborn calves in the spring, and then also on, you know, animals after the rut. And we also see that, that bears and wolves really key into bison carcasses. You know, bison die naturally in the park and that provides an immense food source. It's like a whale washing up on the beach, you know, and, you know, and everything comes to eat it. And, you know, while these predators are, are using that, that means they're not preying on other things on the system like elk or deer or pronghorn. So having these carcasses out on the landscape is helping to stabilize the food web. Which also then ripples into the scavengers and the vultures and the ravens. Mm -hmm. So yeah, very, very broad spread effects. So one, one of the questions or comments that we get a lot here when we're showing people through, everybody knows of hybridized wolves because in some areas they're, they're pets, they're bred for sled dogs with wolves and people at least uh, some of us older folks remember the big push to beefalo a while back, uh, showing that you can indeed cross cattle and bison. And this brings up a question as people come in here, oh, hey, these two bison you have here, are they genetically pure? Chris, is there such a thing as a genetically pure bison? I don't know. And I don't think anybody in the world knows that answer. You know, some of the best geneticists out there are trying to still ask that question. You know, we've answered it a first time and some of those genetics have the first time, but as we learn more about genetics, meaning, you know, you've got all of these millions of base pairs of DNA in an animal right. and you're searching for, is there something here that suggests that your mom or dad once upon a time was a cow? If that's a clear answer, you can see it right off the bat. But if it was a really long time ago, and maybe there's just ever subtle introgression, that's really hard to figure out. So I always answer this question with a little context. When the great extirpation happened, turn of the century, mm -hmm. 60 million down to 200 to 400 Plains Buffalo. Yellowstone was the last stand of the wild bison, roughly two dozen, like you said. Now, the rest of those animals were brought up onto private preserves across the country. There was a pretty strong effort to try and make the new North American cow to hybridize those animals with cows for many reasons. We brought in some animals from Texas, the goodnight herd, and then from a Montana herd that was also Native American herd, you know, the walking coyote, the Pablo Aller herd, same name. We brought in females from there and started a ranching effort in, in the early 1900s in the park. And since then, that's gone on to found Yellowstone, so the native herd, along with those introductions. We've gone on to move those animals out to most of the other federal lands through a couple of degrees of separation. You know, there's, there's uh, 19 Department of Interior herds, so public herds across the country, representing roughly 11,000 animals. Uh, there's 30,000 animals on tribal land, and there's more than 200,000 on private land. So, you know, we've gone out trying to disperse and move these animals back and forth. So when you look at all those buffalo, 
some are incredibly hybridized. And some, like here, are, are on the other extreme of the spectrum. There's very low chance that hybridization ever happened. And then, you know, what I really, what I really think it comes down to, you know, moving forward, the next 100 or 200 years of conserving buffalo, you want to have places where animals are governed by their own decisions. It's not just the alphabet soup of what their genetic material says. It's can animals respond to the environment how they want to? Or are humans governing what happens? Meaning we select who lives and dies, where they live, where they roam, where they move, how much they graze. Because the more we can let, at least in some places, the animal decide, the more those genetics will continue to be as healthy as possible because they're responding to climate change. They're responding to disease, you know, and all the other things that, that shape the natural world. So what we have here is very healthy bison genetically. Getting those out to places like you, to, to tribes, to other places is a best thing for conserving buffalo into the future. Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, well, we just have one last question for you today to wrap things up. What is one thing you wish everyone who is coming into the greater Yellowstone ecosystem knew about bison? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. You know, the first thing that comes to mind was that I was out in Lamar, which is one of the summering areas for bison in the park. It's one of the best places to come see buffalo and um, thousands of animals moving across the land. And somebody who studies wolves out there, out there every day, uh, mostly interacting with the public and such. And she told me, she was like, I wish I had a set of buffalo glasses. You know, and those glasses, if you put them on, you would have like this time-lapse photo of what Lamar looks like on any given day. And you'd see the buffalo come and go. You'd see the grasses grow and return and the animals you know, like timing their return movements to the to the Lamar when the grasses are growing, seeing how they respond to predators. She's like, if I could just put that on a person, that would really describe like what bison are doing here. I don't know what I would want everybody to know. And when I came here, I didn't know a single thing about buffalo. I came here as a park ranger back in 2001. This issue where there's like this glass ceiling on how this country wants to conserve buffalo. Meaning in most places, they're either fenced or constrained in small numbers. Here, that's not the case. But in most places, that's what you do. Unlike wildlife, that didn't make any sense to me. Understanding the conflict, the brucellosis management, and the difficulties of having wild bison. I became really interested in that. It's a hard conversation to have with people. But there's a lot of momentum in this country, too try and find a better future for buffalo and we're doing it you know tribes are doing it public agencies are doing it ngos are doing it people like yourselves are doing it through education and having the animals that you have realizing we're still writing the story of what we're going to do we probably i wouldn't tell them one thing have them listen to the podcast as a start of a whole bunch of things and maybe we would get get some other folks inspired about things they didn't know yeah absolutely that's what we we hope to do this is great. Thank you so much. I wish we could talk forever. There's so many things I want to know about bison.
Um, but this is very informative and I think our listeners will love to hear it. So yes, thank you very much for joining us today. We, uh, we appreciate it. No problem. And I will, I can't wait to get back to Red Lodge. Thank you all. And, um, have a great day. Just as a reminder to everyone, bison may seem sweet and calm, but they're extremely strong and unpredictable animals. The biggest male bison that they found in the park was in the neighborhood of 4,000 pounds, two tons, the size of a small car. They can easily throw a person in the air with a quick toss of the neck. And they live in a dominance-determined society. Because of that, without even knowing it, your body language could be communicating to them that you would like to challenge them. And you do not want to challenge a bison no, bull. don't. <laughs> Even stepping forward to them to take a picture or making eye contact can trigger a charge. We most likely will not realize when our body language is communicating that we want to challenge them because we don't speak bison. And it's important to realize all genders and all ages of bison can charge, not just the big males. We don't even go in with our bison here at the sanctuary, even though they're comfortable with us and they're both female and they've lived almost all of their lives in captivity. If you get the chance to see the wild population in the park, please follow the National Park Service rules. Stay well away from them at all times. Park recommends at least two bus lengths away from all wildlife at all times to keep them and you safe. If a bison approaches or starts making bellowing noises at you or charges you, the park recommends running away as quickly as you can, hiding behind something, hiding in something, or using bear spray if you have it. If you'd like to see bison in the park, some great places to look for them, if you're willing to do so safely, are in Lamar and Hayden Valley, especially in late summertime. That's where the herds come down from the mountainsides to gather for the rut, their mating season. It's a beautiful thing to see and experience. We'd highly recommend it. Just be prepared to be stuck in a bison jam. Sometimes there are a few thousand bison in that valley all at once. Or, of course, if you want to see bison up close and not worry about a bison jam, you can come see Speedy and Luna at the sanctuary. You know, all, all of this just builds up to, I think, my favorite t-shirt that I saw last summer, which says, don't pet the fluffy cows. <laughs> That's a great one. They're coming up with good ones lately. Hopefully the message sticks. Well, we would like to give one last shout out of appreciation to Chris Jeremiah for all he has done for the bison in the park. Managing a wild herd is a very complicated thing. And when the bison populations recovered in the park, they began to overflow its boundaries like we mentioned, into those unprotected areas, which of course led to conflict of many kinds. At first, these bison were being killed off, but Chris has been leading his team in finding other management strategies, and in doing so, established the first transfer program that transferred these bison to the Fork Peck Indian Reservation. And this was an alternative to slaughter, and also helped restore their lost cultures and ways of life. Now over 300 bison have been transferred to this reservation, from which the Intertribal Buffalo Council could then distribute to tribes all around North America. Currently, this process is very rigorous and tedious and takes actually several years to go through. They are working on improving it and increasing its capacity to help more bison in the future. This will reduce the number of bison eligible for transfer that have to go to slaughter by 40%. Wow. And to quote the National Park website, 
Many tribes see Yellowstone bison as uniquely linked to their ancestral descendants because they were never completely extirpated from the park. To many tribal members, returning bison to tribal lands goes well beyond finding an alternative to slaughter. It is about restoring a part of themselves that is missing. These are the types of conservation efforts we love to hear about. One's taking a holistic approach when we have no other option but to manage a population. If you are interested in helping today's American bison, there are several organizations you can support that are working to conserve the species, as well as all of the associated culture so closely tied to bison. Two examples are the Intertribal Buffalo Council in Rapid City, South Dakota. Their mission is to restore bison on tribal lands for cultural and spiritual enhancement and preservation. They help coordinate education and training programs and the transportation of the bison. And also the National Bison Association, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to bring together stakeholders to celebrate the heritage of American bison, to educate and to create sustainable futures for the industry. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. Do you have ideas about topics for future episodes? Questions about past episodes? Email podcast at yellowstonewildlife.org or leave us a text or voicemail at 406-426-1210. We'd love to hear from you and we'll do our best to include your questions in upcoming episodes. For our full archive, please visit yellowstoneecosystem.com or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to give us a good rating. It means a lot. Video crossovers and special features can be found on our YouTube channel, Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary, along with behind-the-scenes videos, news updates, Experience Our Wild educational videos, and more. This episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem was recorded at the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary in Red Lodge, Montana, and produced by Gary Robson. Our theme music was written and performed by Justin Satterfield and recorded by Sean Keeney. Once again, Gary and I would like to thank our guest, Chris Jeremiah. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Yellowstone Ecosystem. Ha, 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 ha.